Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Capital One Bank. With no fees or minimums, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions, even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Cars.com. Have you heard about the Your Garage feature on Cars.com? Here's how it works. You add your car to your garage to track its market value and cash in when the time is right to sell. Track both your car's historical and projected value when it's time to sell, easily secure an instant offer from a local dealership, or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Healthcare is obviously a big deal. Medical treatment per se, but also the healthcare industry and access to it. Also, the politics and the economics of healthcare. In the U.S., we spend more money on healthcare per capita than any other country. It totals about 18% of our GDP. And yet, our health outcomes aren't anywhere near the top. Why not? Well, there are a lot of reasons, many of which we've already looked into on this show in episodes like How Do We Know What Really Works in Healthcare? and in our three-part series called Bad Medicine. Today, we are taking a far simpler approach to exploring the state of healthcare and its assorted conundrums. Today, we're just having a conversation with a doctor, a doctor in Boston, but not just any doctor. Okay. Um, I'm Atul Gawande. I'm a surgeon at Brigham and Women's Hospital and uh, director of a laboratory called Ariadne Labs, a center for health system innovation at uh, the Brigham and Harvard School of Public Health. And then I write for The New Yorker. So not only are you a surgeon and a researcher and a professor, but you've also written four what I think are really excellent books, um, honestly much better than many of us who only write books for a living. So I did just want to say on behalf of all my fellow writers, um, (laughs) we hate you and we would prefer (laughs) that you stop writing books if you don't mind and and leave it to us. Um, No, seriously though, how are you able to be as good at that when you're doing two or three other things. And and let me preface that by saying that I've often observed that of all the professions um, who also are authors, I do think that doctors are the best. If you look through history, Chekhov and on and on. And I do wonder if there is something in the pursuit of medicine that you feel is uh, closely tied to the pursuit of writing. I I do. Um, And I think it's, I've often thought it was a little bit unfair. Like I was a sort of fake New Yorker staff writer because I had this daily exposure to the human experience in a way that my colleagues on the staff had to go out and find. Like I just had to go to work and I'm you've got people who are, you know, I've got to we're we're going to break some terrible news today or we're going to have to do an operation that could go well or they might not. Or maybe we've figured out we can't actually do the operation and then everything else is layered into that. You have um family dynamics. You have money. (laughs) Um, Boy, do you have money (laughs) as an issue in this world. And so I sort of find it all inseparable. I I don't, you know, you ask, how do I fit the writing into these other jobs? It it is part of all these other jobs. I feel like I would have totally burned out on my uh, 
medical practice work if I were only in the trenches and not able to kind of lift my head up and see what's really going on, what's the pattern of what's really happening in front of me, and then found that the writing led me to test out ideas and try out new thoughts. And then I wanted to test them uh, in the real world, which became my public health work where we could go in and say, hey, can we get a country to adopt our dumb little surgical checklist I wrote about in The New Yorker? <laughs> that little surgical checklist was the topic of one Gawande book, The Checklist Manifesto. He argued that medicine could really benefit from the sort of basic, careful attention to detail that's already being practiced by people like airline pilots. His other books are Complications, A Surgeon's Notes on an Imperfect Science, and Better, A Surgeon's Notes on Performance, and the book for which he's best known, Being Mortal, which wrestles with decline and death. We'll hear about all of that today. We'll hear how truly complicated medicine can be. We have 60,000 different diagnoses, 60,000 different ways your body can fail. And we have generated 6,000 drugs, 4,000 medical and surgical techniques and procedures, and we're trying to deploy that capability town by town to every person alive, regardless of their ability to pay. We'll hear about some simple solutions. So our systems are incredibly optimized for sending bills. I can send a bill in like three keystrokes, <laughs> but recording an allergy can be four different screens. And we'll hear why Atul Gawande is not at all like you and me. At least not me. One of the things that I love about surgery is it is, <laughs> I have to confess, the least stressful thing I do. WNYC Studios, this is Freakonomics Radio, the podcast that explores the hidden side of everything. Here's your host, Stephen Dubner. I've always wondered, you, um, you're a productive fellow, uh, and I'm just curious <laughs> how a typical week or month, I have no idea what the cycles are, but how, how do you break up your various duties? Do you try to do some of everything in every day? Are there weeks where you go without operating or writing? How does that work? I've never figured it out, to be honest. Every day is a problem uh, to solve how I get the things I'm interested in doing get, get done. But I'd say it's probably on a daily cycle. So I might have a day in the operating room or in the clinic. Um, but then the next day I'll be entirely focused on um, my work in public health. And then I might be traveling and giving a lecture or visiting one of our research sites. There's a dominant theme to the day. And then I'm piling everything else around it. Um, and my main parameters are I really, really work hard to have about 25% of my time unscheduled. And I make sure I get enough sleep most of the time. And do you ever, in the middle of, let's say, a surgery, think about, oh, here's how I will be writing about this day? You know, I don't really. I, I, I'm in the flow. Um, one of the things that I love about surgery is it is, <laughs> I have to confess, the least stressful thing I do because 
at this point, I've done thousands of the operations I do. 97 to 98% go pretty much as expected. And the 2% that don't, you know, I know the 10 different ways that are most common that they'll go wrong, and I have approaches to it. So it's kind of freeing in a, in a certain way. You mentioned money uh, seemingly touching or influencing everything you do. What do you mean by that? Well, I remember coming into practice as a new surgeon in 2003, and 15% of my patients were uninsured. I'm a cancer surgeon, and we would have to figure out, like, how do we get free care for this person? What are we going to do for their radiation treatments? You know, I had a college student who had bought a policy that seemed great because it was so cheap. And then it turned out that it had a $75,000 limit and she had a metastatic cancer, curable, but she needed one more thing after surgery and chemotherapy, which was going to be radiation. She didn't want us to tell her family because she was afraid they would mortgage their house um, to pay for it. And, of course, we did tell the family, and then, of course, they did take out a second mortgage. And, you know, there's all the ways I get paid. My patients are covered by 56 different insurers the last time that I checked, <laughs> all paying completely differently. It's kind of impossible to figure out what's one going to pay versus another going to pay. I pay 29000 a year for malpractice insurance, which is incredibly low uh, compared to what many people do around the country. And, uh, and so, you know, even that, like, why is ours lower? It turns out we have a very effective insurer that we work with. So there's, you know, interesting puzzles on, on in every little corner of it, um, you know, and, and sometimes tragic problems in the middle of it. I now am seeing patients routinely with $2,000, $3,000, $5,000 deductibles. And some of my patients have uh, that, I, that I specialize in are, are relatively rare conditions. And for example, one set of patients I take care of have a genetic syndrome called Lee-Fraumeni, where they have a, a mutation called P53, which in, in a gene that makes it so they're forming cancers all the time. And you know, most of them don't make it to 40 years of age. We've learned how to monitor them. We've learned how to step in. We're, we have removed multiple cancer from people, and we're getting, we're getting them past 40. And then, you know, lo and behold, their spouse buys uh, the cheap policy, which means that we're now out of network, and so they've decided that they have to go to a place that doesn't have a specialist. And it's painful because I'm watching, watching them get inappropriate care now um, that could harm their life. So, you know, that's what I mean by money. Like, it's... It's everywhere. So every time I ask you a question now, I feel like I'm using up time that should be spent better saving someone's life. But, um, <laughs> but, but I'm going to keep asking them. So how has the Affordable Care Act changed your own universe in terms especially of payment and the treatment that comes with it? Yeah, the, the, the dramatic change really preceded the ACA because I'm in Massachusetts. And so we got a, a preview with... Romney Care, where um, we got to have universal coverage come to Massachusetts through a plan a lot like Obamacare. And so now it's been a decade. And within a couple of years, I no longer had uninsured patients. I haven't seen an uninsured patient in, um, in about a decade. And then you go to Texas, where the rate of uninsurance is that one out of five people have no coverage for their basic needs. The other big thing, though, is that as the costs have gone up, and the, um, and the cost sharing has gone up. It's been dramatic to me to see people who now have 
um, deductibles in the thousands of dollars, routinely making decisions that, you know, you can see people are not filling their high blood pressure medication and they're not taking their statins for cholesterol control and things like that that, that have, you know, long-term consequences but on a day-to-day -day basis don't feel any different. Gawande grew up in a medical family. His father was a urologist, his mother a pediatrician. They had moved to the U.S. from India in the early 1960s. A tool was born in Brooklyn, raised in Ohio. He studied biology and political science at Stanford, then PPE, philosophy, politics, and economics at Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. And then he got both his MD and a master's in public health at Harvard. So I know that years ago... Um, you were involved in some political campaigns for Gary Hart and Al Gore. Yeah, and, and going way back into my childhood. <laughs> yeah. And then I understand that uh, while you were in med school, you deferred completion to become uh, Bill Clinton's healthcare lieutenant during his 92 campaign. So from what I can tell, that was your last political involvement in that regard. I'm curious what that experience taught you about the differences between academic or theoretical healthcare and real-world healthcare, especially the political dimension, especially the, you know, the paying for it dimension? Yeah, um, a ton. <laughs> um, there is a sort of fundamental disconnect often between the academic work and the work needed to answer the key questions that people in the political sphere are trying to answer. Often people are trying to come to experts for technical answers to questions that don't have a technical answer. So uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give this as a, the, the case in point is the Affordable Care Act. The trouble is that people fundamentally disagree on what the goal of the health care coverage is. Is it to free up a trillion dollars for a tax reform? Is it to secure universal coverage for all? Is it cut costs? Uh, you know, you, you, you can't take a trillion dollars out of the healthcare system uh, and make healthcare better at the same time uh, and increase coverage in a short time frame. In government, it was fundamentally about the budget is your values. And the technical and academic stuff often submerges those debates instead of actually having them straight on. Your research center, Ariadne, is named for the, the Greek goddess of labyrinths. So I'm curious, uh, I, I gather the implication there is that uh, the, the medical or healthcare scenario, at least in the States these days, is fairly labyrinthine. And, uh, and you are known for seeking out simple and scalable ideas to make healthcare better. So talk for a moment about the degree to which you believe in the power of really simple ideas to address a, a, a situation or a set of problems as labyrinthine as the ones that we currently have? Um, I, I believe really strongly in that potential. There's three basic problems. How do we have access to care? How do we tackle the cost? And then most important, if you have access to care, is it being delivered in such a way that you get the benefit of the last century of discovery that allows us to live 80 to 85 years, typically? We're drowning in the complexity of the knowledge that's been discovered over the last century. 
So for example, the biggest killer in the country uh, and in, indeed in the world now is high blood pressure. We have a billion people in the world who have high blood pressure. For only 14% have it diagnosed and under control. And the medications that control blood pressure have been around for decades. It costs pennies and we're not following through on it. How do you make it simple for people to be able to take your high blood pressure medication? We have a delivery system that basically relies on the idea that you're going to come in for a 20-minute appointment with your doctor, and that is the only way that we are going to work with you. And a combination of email and phone and not even having to see a doctor most of the time demonstrated to get it to 80 to 90 percent levels. And so there's, there's many opportunities like this. And by the way, why is that medication in particular still a prescription medication? What's the point of that? Well, if blood pressure is too low or you take a diabetes medication and your blood sugars get too low, um, that is also harmful for you. So the capacity to have medical oversight and make sure that you're getting the right medications in the right way is critically important. But there are lots of ways in which someone working with a nurse can um, can manage for themselves and not have to have the doctor, you know, involved every few weeks. When you talk about the different mechanisms to get patients to comply with uh, taking a, a medicine as simple as, you know, hypertension treatment, I'm just curious, you know, why leave it to human error, especially when we know that humans are really good at making those kind of errors or at least not completing those kind of tasks? I mean, would you if left to your own devices, you know, be putting statins or hypertension medicine in the drinking supply? Would <laughs> you want to use CRISPR-like technology to eliminate the possibility of certain maladies if possible? Well, first of all, this seems ironic in the age of precision medicine that we would go to the point of saying, well, let's just give everybody just a blanket statin dose. And yeah, some people will be killed, but a lot more people will be saved. We're perfectly capable of uh, tuning the care we have, not only in the highest income parts of the world, but in the lowest income parts of the world. And often they're very simple, cheap systems, like a checklist <laughs> um, that can get, get really um, great results. And it's just a matter of being willing to systematize what we do. Do you want me to give another example? Sure, I'd love it, yeah. On any given day, we have 11,000 women will come into a hospital to deliver a baby. We meaning the United States, I gather. The United States, yes. One out of three will end up having surgery to have that baby, which we know is markedly higher than it needs to be. One, one out of three will have a C-section. 10% um, of their babies will go to intensive care, which we also know is uh, uh, higher than necessary. And the way we know these things are unnecessary is that the likelihood of a C-section varies from 7% to 70%, depending on what hospital you go to. And what are the big drivers of that variance and how much of it is a financial incentive and how much is it is defensive medicine, let's say? Well, I'll just add on one more thing, which is that we will spend 0.6% of GDP today doing all that stuff. There are clearly financial drivers, but um, our team that works on this uh, recently demonstrated that not only what doctor and system you go to makes a difference, but even at that same system, the labor nurse you have can affect the rate of cesarean section by 250% or more. Wow. wow. So the mechanisms by which are what? What is he or she doing differently? We have ideas, but we haven't really proven them. So the ideas are that an ability of a nurse to walk you through what might be a 20-hour process 
um, to be incredibly supportive. And for a woman who is low risk, a great labor nurse can make a big difference compared to one who is um, more likely to um, pull the trigger and say to the obstetrician, you know, this isn't moving along. Maybe we should think about a C-section. And, and that's the most common reason for a C-section is not that the baby gets in trouble or anything like that. It's called failure to progress. We're still piecing this stuff together, but we ought to be able to figure this out. I mean, we're spending, you know, 0.6% of GDP today on this. We should be able to pull this apart and, um, and create a simpler, better way of doing it. And that, that's the kind of thing that our, that our team takes on. Good ideas often take a really long time to catch on in medicine. Uh, why do you think that is? Yeah, I got really fascinated by this thinking about uh, two examples. Both of them transformed surgery in the 19th century, anesthesia and the d discovery of antisepsis, uh, preventing infections, the biggest killer there was. Anesthesia was discovered, and within two months— In Boston, right? In, in Boston, yeah, the Mass General yeah. Hospital. And within two months of publishing the result that a gas could render people insensible to pain, it was being used in every capital in Europe. You know, there was no internet. You had to send news by boat and horse. And within two months, people were— using it, you know, in the capitals of Europe. And by six years later, there wasn't a hospital in the country that was not, um, that, that was not delivering anesthesia care. By contrast, uh, antisepsis, Joseph Lister discovered that if you used antiseptic solution, cleaned the instruments, your hands, did all that stuff, you could cut infections by 80%. Uh, and a generation later, you still hadn't gotten to half of the profession doing it. And when, when I broke it down, Realize, you know, there's a difference between a visible and immediate effect they had in anesthesia that um, that was that that could be recognized right away, and uh, tackling invisible delayed uh, effects of germs. We like our causes proximate in the world, don't we? Yeah, yeah. So you're trying to get people to take action on something that is not going to matter until uh, a week or two later. The second problem, though, is. The anesthesia solution was not only good for the patient, it was great for the doctor. Surgeons don't like having a screaming patient on the table. They had to do their <laughs> operations in, in 60 to 120 seconds because you just didn't have that much time when the orderly is holding people down. And having a patient asleep meant you could be meticulous. Just You were so much happier as a surgeon. And so this was a win-win for both, and that made it spread virally. Now, antisepsis was literally pain now for gain later. The antiseptic solution Lister had was carbolic acid. You, you know, he tried to sell it like you sell Listerine today. The burn is, you know, ah, the burn is how you know it works. And you had to regulate it. You had to make hospitals do it. You had to change the culture of surgery to be antiseptic. And even today, we still have to fight the uphill battle uh, and figure out ways to make it easier to do the right thing. So, you know, Example from today, the fastest selling drug in history went virally was Viagra. Immediate and visible effect. <laughs> and, uh, and it was very good for the doctors too. My dad was a urologist at the time and he tripled the number of patients he had in his practice within, within weeks. Uh, and so, you know, that was just tremendous win-win. Uh, surgery checklist harder to sell. <laughs> Cuts deaths, we just showed in South Carolina, hospitals that adopted it got a 22% reduction in death uh, uh, compared to the hospitals that didn't complete the process. Because it's making a investment now for a gain later uh, for many problems which are often 
not immediately visible to people. It's interesting. And both in both of your examples, it was the prevention that people ignore and the intervention that, of course, people gravitate toward. Yeah. And if you think about it, you know, this is climate change, right? It's the ultimate invisible delayed problem for which we may need to make a sacrifice now. And that is, you know, public health is full of examples like that. It's that kind of pain now for gain quite later. <laughs> and it's hard to convince people not to ignore it because people want to not do the painful thing. Coming up after the break, how do you get people to do the painful thing? And how the role of medical professionals is changing. No matter how smart you are, no matter how much training as a doctor or a nurse, you simply can't know it all. And we are now having to move from being cowboys delivering the care, I can do it all myself, to really pit crews. That's coming up right after this. Economics Radio is sponsored by Redfin. Whether you need to buy or sell a home or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin has got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like so you can find the home that's just right for you. With the top-rated Redfin app, you can favorite homes, share listings with others, and schedule tours even the same day with a local Redfin agent. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents get you the best price possible for your home. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge. In fact, last year, Redfin saved home sellers $127 million. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, Redfin can help. Download the Redfin app to get started today. Free Economics Radio is sponsored by Amica Insurance. Amica Insurance is all about empathy. They know your auto, home, and life insurance are more than just policies. Home insurance is about protecting the life you've built. Auto insurance is there to protect you on the road ahead. That's why Amica takes a consultative approach to help protect what matters most to you. They are a customer-owned insurance company that puts your needs first, and their representatives are available 24-7 for claim-related matters. As Amica says, empathy is our best policy. Economics Radio is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That hurtful comment your friend made, that frustrating thing your mom does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Therapy is a safe space to share whatever is weighing you down so you can get some relief and find a solution. BetterHelp offers professional, affordable online therapy on a flexible schedule. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Freakonomics today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Freakonomics. Atul Gawande, surgeon, author, and healthcare researcher, 
has spent time thinking about the overall complexity of the healthcare ecosystem, as well as how big gains can be made by reducing basic medical errors. So, Atul, um, your book, The Checklist Manifesto, was aimed at and, and proved really effective at eliminating all different sorts of medical errors. Obviously, there's been a lot of improvement, but the fact remains, at least as argued by some researchers, that medical errors of various sorts are as high as the third highest leading cause of death in the U.S. Can you just talk about, I guess, the progress of the medical profession in decreasing iatrogenic effects in medicine and whether you feel successful reform can come from within the institution? So I do think the pressure has to come from the outside. First of all, that's 2 million of people a year pick up infections in hospitals that they didn't have when they went in. And then you add in that we have been the major source and contributor to the opioid epidemic. I was shocked to find the news and the data indicating that uh, for my patients in surgery, if they are on a narcotic medication for more than seven days, 8% are likely to still be on that narcotic a year later. And that understanding that it's that addictive, um, we didn't have and we didn't build the systems in for that. And then that goes into a system where economically we have the high school only educated population having a declining economic future and it fed right into the kind of deaths of despair. So we have major areas where we've made progress, but healthcare is made up of many, many different kinds of services and care. Uh, okay, what's the difference between a typical healthcare system and, say, a restaurant chain like the Cheesecake Factory? <laughs> um, you're referring to the article I wrote uh, about. With apologies to Atul Gawande, yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> about, about the Cheesecake Factory. Basically, what I was talking about was the idea that, you know, here's this restaurant chain, and yes, it's highly caloric, <laughs> but the Cheesecake Factories here have as much business as a, as a medium sized hospital, 100 million in, in business a year. And they would cook to order every meal people had. And in order to make that happen, they have to run a whole process that they have real cooks, but then they have managers. And, you know, I was talking to one of the managers there about how would he make healthcare work? And his answer was, I, I, here's what I would do. But of course, you know, you guys do this. I would look to see what the best people are doing. I would find a way to turn that into a kind of recipe and then make sure everybody else is doing it and then see how far we improve and try learning again from that. And he said, you, you do that, right? And we don't. We, we, we don't do that. So you identify the, the three things that uh, something like the Cheesecake Factory does well, better than, let's say, a, a big hospital or hospital chain, as quality control, cost control, and innovation around service. Okay, yeah. so when I read that, I think, okay, I, I, I get the point, and I very much enjoy the argument, especially coming from a surgeon. It's, you know, provocative and, and kind of delicious at the same time. But then I think, well, to be fair, there are a lot fewer variables in a restaurant than a hospital, a lot less mystery, and a much higher degree of difficulty in what you're trying to accomplish, right? So talk to me about how the cheesecake model realistically can be, if not applied, at least learned from in a healthcare setting. Yeah, I mean, the the, the level of 
complexity and difficulty we're talking about here is on a whole nother scale. So, you know, they've got a phone book of a couple hundred maybe different things that they cook up in the, in, for you when you go into a cheesecake factory. Uh, in healthcare, for your 13 organ systems, we have 60,000 different diagnoses, 60,000 different ways your body can fail. And we have generated 6,000 drugs, 4,000 medical and surgical techniques and procedures, plus an uncounted number of ways to prevent uh, those conditions. And we're trying to deploy that capability town by town to every person alive, regardless of their ability to pay. Now, you know, I've argued that is the most ambitious thing man has ever attempted, that human beings have ever attempted. You have to break it down. And I think there are a few key systems that start with what is the basic primary care and how do we make sure that the financing optimizes that system? Because that's one of the most life-extending things that you get to have. How do we make the surgery system work? The average person will have eight operations in their lifetime. Everybody's born, so we need that process to work. Everybody's going to need an emergency room at one point or another. So how do we make that actually work better? We're all going to come to the end of life. I think breaking it down that way and recognizing you might need different payment models, different innovation for each of them, that, that we would actually be able to make substantial progress. And each of them, in a way, is now reducible to a cheesecake factory-like uh, sense of, you know, what are the best people doing? How do I distill that into a manageable recipe and, uh, and enable it for as many people as possible? I feel like I hear so many pieces of the solution from different quadrants. And I guess my, uh, my wonder would be, whether it will work because the medical and healthcare um, system is obviously large and, and complex with many players, with many incentives, which are often kind of perversely misaligned. And so I'm curious if you really think that um, it can be addressed in a kind of radical improvement that it sounds like you want um, and will accept the sort of collaborators that perhaps it needs to invite in? Well, the the fragmentation won't get, it will not be solved just by a technical fix like making a better computer system. The, you know, the, the big mistake we have, the thing that's breaking our back now is that we've tied healthcare coverage to where you work. And if you don't work, well, then we've got all kinds of systems that we've had to then create outside of it. And so it's become this kind of fragmented mess. And the reality is that work is changing too. So that employment-based, everybody gets a different kind of approach in healthcare, uh, is breaking down. Um, the economist Lawrence Katz and, and Alan Kruger uh, looked at the last decade of net new job growth and 94% of the net new jobs have been in forms of employment where there are no healthcare benefits, freelancers, independent contractors, temporary workers. And so, and that's kind of good news because economists always used to worry about job lock, that people were not willing to do what they wanted to do just because they had to hang on to their, their current healthcare insurance. The problem is Obamacare is a stopgap solution where people who don't have coverage can go out and buy it. And the hope was that that system would be one that then could grow to become the system. One of the things that we did in 
analyzing what coverage has done over the last 10 years is we found that it has dramatically improved people's health status and also generated mortality reductions. But the way it does it is not because it gives you coverage for emergencies. People become more likely to have a regular source of care. And having a regular source of care over time, over years, at about five years, you start seeing these substantial reductions in mortality. And that idea that you would could have consistent, regular source of care is crucial to the whole way healthcare now creates its value. In the age of high deductible health plans, that is disastrous for primary care because that is one of the things that people immediately sacrifice. Right. So you're talking now about uh, the value of incrementalism and and prevention in medicine. Um, you've written in the past, governments everywhere tend to drastically undervalue incrementalism and overvalue heroism. And that goes for, I guess, you know, inspecting bridges <laughs> um, versus inspecting um, patients. So the fact is, if you look at the economics of healthcare currently, the highest paying jobs, among doctors at least, are all the potential heroes, the interventionalists, the orthopedics, cardiology, dermatology, gastroenterology, et cetera, et cetera. And the lowest paid are all the incrementalists and the preventives, the pediatrics, endocrinology, family medicine, and so on. So that would strike me as a big, big, big ship to move, considering how much money is at stake. And I'm curious what kind of ideas or solutions you might have for that. Well, I mean, first of all, let's understand why that came about. And, it, you know, in the 1950s, 1960s, when the basis of insurance got established, it was really only the heroic stuff that we knew anything about. You know, penicillin was coming in after you had the pneumonia. We didn't know high blood pressure uh, existed and that it mattered. The dramatic change was we got the computational power to follow people over time, discover what you could do now that would have a benefit in five years, 10 years, 20 years. In fact, with the the data we now have, we basically are all pre-existing conditions waiting to happen, which is why it's so crucial to have coverage that that um, enables people to be assured regardless of their pre-existing conditions. Now we want to pay for the incremental needs. Already we're at about 30% of Medicare patients are being seen by clinicians who are being paid and incentivized to keep them out of the hospital, keep them out of the emergency room. And as that happens, you're starting to see health plans that are designed around strengthening the whole primary care base. And there is a lot of evidence, as I understand it at least, that access to primary care physicians just generally has a a pretty great effect overall on outcomes, yes? It's sort of, you know, murky uh, on the long-term cost. You have to follow for a long time, and it's still debated about what needs to come together. But if you have a regular source of care um, for the majority of your medical needs, and it's usually with a primary care physician, you have improved survival, uh, better infant mortality for kids, you have um, better overall health. There's a variety of indicators. I guess that's also addressing an essential component of medicine generally, which is the feedback loop. So you're a surgeon, so you're in one of the few realms where the feedback is quick and fairly thorough. Can you talk for a minute about the problem of getting good feedback um, and what's being done to improve that? It's a huge problem. Even in surgery, I don't have a direct feedback loop to really understand how are they doing 30 days from now? How are they doing 90 days from now? Did the operation succeed? Did it Did it not in making their life better? You'll find out a year later what the average result was for your hospital's patients. In other fields, it's an even looser one. You know, the radiologist 
who has to make a call on what the diagnosis is doesn't often get much feedback on whether they made a bad call unless they get sued. <laughs> and that chance to close that feedback loop is crucial when we have now so many more people involved in care because any one of us only has a piece of the care and to see the net result requires us to have data. And that's why it's so powerful and important and people have been talking so much about how um, data-driven healthcare is so fundamental to where we're going. You basically are peering through a tiny little keyhole pointed in the wrong direction <laughs> to figure out what happens to people um, as they journey through care. How firmly do you believe in the digital revolution to really remake the feedback loop in medicine? Well, we're in the MS-DOS phase <laughs> of computerization in healthcare, right? At this point, I'm a glorified data entry clerk. I spend more time doing data entry in my office than I do seeing my patients. And that's just broken. So our systems are incredibly optimized for sending bills. I can send a bill in like three keystrokes, <laughs> but recording an allergy can be four different screens. So it's not built to set a goal for care and then accomplish it. We've seen some early fantastic things, you know, computerized ordering of medications vastly increase the safety of being prescribed a medication. It used to be that the pharmacists were having to interpret the scrawl of a physician and they'd get the, the dose or and even the medicine completely wrong. So, uh, you know, we're at this stage where it's ripe for the apple of healthcare to come uh, uh, knock the C-prompt out. We're in this incredible flourishing right now your care is changing dramatically. The biggest user of electronic health records uh, and the fastest growing users of health, electronic health records are patients themselves, um, accessing it on their phones. Secondly, you have the introduction of apps and FDA now clearing the way for software applications to be you know, prescribed and given to people as part of their care. Um, we have wearables. That 20-minute visit that you might have once in a while could be tremendously enabled through everything from classes you can take in groups <laughs> if you have diabetes or high blood pressure to interactions over applications, uh, email, people doing hospital at home. Acute pneumonia can be treated now at home, not only equal, but often better um, with faster recovery. I'm curious what evidence there is for the efficacy of patients using electronic health records. Does it make the interaction with the doctor better? Or, you know, potentially I could see it leading to uh, hypochondria and uh, overconsumption of medical services without better outcomes. Yeah, so there's this really interesting movement called Open Notes, where systems open up all your notes, what doctors wrote about you, <laughs> to full access. It started at the Beth Israel Deaconess Hospital here in Boston, and um, and everybody freaked out. <laughs> like, you know, people people are going to um, be calling me. But they've found several things. First of all, no tremendous backlash <laughs> from the patients. Um, the patients were much more likely to understand the uh, instructions and the diagnosis they have. They improved adherence to certain medications that were being measured. The next big move that they've begun experimenting is with letting patients enter things into the record too. 
put their own information in, any kind of logs they have, comment on the notes that the clinicians has, register if they think something might be incorrectly recorded. Patients have found errors in the, in the records and uh, been able to correct them. I'd love to hear a bit more from you on um, longevity. So after decades of incredibly impressive gains, uh, it seems we're in, in some places leveling off and maybe even uh, going back a bit. I'm just curious, given medicine, genomics, et cetera, et cetera, you've written a lot and well about uh, what can be done to improve the current state of end-of-life care. So I'm, I'm curious to hear uh, both those thoughts, longevity and what to do at the end, whenever the end comes. Yeah, so let me try piecing these apart. <laughs> Number one on longevity. Um, so, you know, we're, we're now at about an 80-year life expectancy, uh, and a century ago, so in 1900, the average lifespan was 47 years. So we're living 30-plus years longer than that on average with what we've discovered over the last century. But we should say that number was always heavily, heavily, heavily affected by infant mortality, yes? Absolutely. But it is a huge deal that in the course of this century, we've cut the likelihood of of infant mortality by 20-fold, that we took the biggest killer of women, childbirth, <laughs> and, and virtually eliminated it. We still have a ways to go. But I think the the uh, the first thing about our lifespan is that just with existing discoveries and executing on them, I think we'll be able to push the average person being able to get 85 uh, years uh, and beyond. We're making discoveries that are already reducing the rate of dementia as a uh, major killer. And that will change, I think, the prospects of late life. So then the second thing is that we're actually, even though we're living longer, we're spending less of that time with disability. And uh, now that said, we still, on average, have about eight years of significant disability where you depend on others for part of your daily needs. And that is the big deal to me in the in the next phase of work that has to be done. Uh, most of where we provide help to people is entirely along the lines of, uh, you know, focusing on safety and survival. The focus is on how do we reduce the number of falls you have? How do we uh, make sure you get all your medications on time? Those are all good things, but they have nothing to do with the purpose and joy and meaning of getting to live a life. And people are miserable in these situations where you have to rely on the help of others to to prosper in your life. There is, I think, a, a revolution of, of uh, it's still a minority, but of, of places that are focused on people's well-being, not just their survival, as uh, part of their purpose. And that sense of asking routinely the questions that really matter, uh, you know, between uh, adult children and parents is what we're just starting to do. The questions like, what is the minimum quality of life you'd find acceptable? Can I have a drink at the end of the day? What are your fears and what are your hopes, uh, even if your health worsens? What are your opportunities for growth? You know, my mom turned 80 and she just moved into a retirement community that is on a college campus where oh, wow. they she she goes to classes. <laughs> she writes papers. <laughs> she gets to do a little teaching and lecturing here and there too. And and you know, 
and why not? It, and she needs help, but you, there's no reason that you can't be that way. Does she drop in on a kegger once in a while, or is that, that not really her thing? <laughs> you know, she, she invites them over for a drink once in a while <laughs> at her place. And also, uh, she can't drive anymore, so now she also learned from the students how to order Lyft. It's kind of fun and hilarious. Let me ask you this. When I think about what we call healthcare, I think about medicine and then healthcare delivery as kind of two almost separate channels. And I'm just curious if you even buy that premise, which area of those two is in more need of an upgrade? Well, I think they are part and parcel of the same thing. So medicine and healthcare delivery to me are our ability to um, address people's medical needs, ranging from being able to work on prevention and primary acute sickness to managing chronic illness to mental health issues and uh, palliative care when you become seriously ill. Uh, And that range, which includes diagnosing, treating, helping people stay on track and, uh, and managing teams that can do that extremely well, that is medicine uh, delivered appropriately. In, in some sense, we want to distinguish between, you know, what are the breakthroughs? And we've made a century of incredible breakthroughs. And we have more to come in Alzheimer's, in metastatic cancer, in other unsolved problems like in immune diseases. And as those discoveries come online, we have ignored the innovations necessary to make them get to everybody, to be delivered widely, and missed out on the big opportunities. The biggest opportunity to advance health and save lives is really in the systems innovation and not just the front-end discovery. The volume of knowledge and skill required to take good care of people has exceeded the capability of any individual in the system, period. No matter how smart you are, no matter how much training as a doctor or a nurse, you simply can't know it all. And we are now having to move from being cowboys delivering the care, I can do it all myself, to really pit crews. And the most effective way of doing it is that you have a doctor and a nurse and maybe a social worker and maybe a health coach taking care of a population of patients and dividing and conquering and communicating. And that is what we actually do still only a minority of the time. We, that's the big transition we're undergoing in healthcare, and it affects all of what we discussed, access, cost, and delivery. And, um, and that's where the big, the big transformative opportunity comes from because the most expensive places in the country are not getting you the best results. It's often the lowest cost places, and part of the secret of the lowest cost places is they behave more like teams. They behave more like systems. Um, are you hopeful overall? I am. Uh, and the reason why is because, you know, I know it's a friggin' mess. <laughs> but on the whole, even in the short time that I've gotten to be a clinician, uh, you know, it's been about uh, 14 years I've been practicing as a surgeon. And during that time, we've cut the number of uninsured by half. I live in a state that completely eliminated uh, whether we have 
people who are uninsured. It's not perfect, but we are, a lot of our work in surgery, for example, my field, we have cut the death rate by 30 to 40% uh, uh, in the time that I've been doing this work. While we've been cutting the death rate, you now typically go home the same day from these kinds of operations. And then you add in what we've been able to do around primary healthcare and the discovery that we can act early in your life, knowing genomics, knowing the profile of what you have, knowing things about your neighborhood and your environment. We are, we are delivering more and more capacity for improving people's health. And then even at the end of the life, you know, uh, less than a decade ago, we had less than 20% of people who would be anywhere except in an institution as they came to the end of life. They're, they had they, they had higher rates of suffering, they had massively higher costs, and they did not live longer. They typically lived shorter. We're now at about 50% end up at home in hospice. The lifespan and coming to the end of life has now become part of our culture and our society, and it's shifting. So I, I've seen these things happen. I've got to participate in some of it. And, uh, and it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of continued problems we've got to work on. They're, they're really big deals and big opportunities. Uh, but it's not like we have failed to make progress. We've, we've, we've been moving the ball down the road. Uh, well, you are awesome, and uh, congratulations on your continuing burgeoning successes on many fronts. Thank you. That's very nice of you to say. Well, it's great to see someone who's so good at so many things get uh, acknowledged for being good. So I like that. <laughs> it's just um, uh, waiting waiting for the hammer to come down. <laughs> <laughs> eventually, eventually the blow will come. <laughs> May it never fall. Coming up next time on Freakonomics Radio, today we heard about the medicine of today. Next time, we'll hear about the medicine of tomorrow. At its core, the CRISPR gene editing technology is, is now giving human beings the opportunity to change the course of evolution. What's it feel like to help launch a new phase in humanity's development? And I realized with this horror, and I can feel it right now as I'm telling you the story, I feel this chill uh, in my body, you know, that, that I, I realized that it was Adolf Hitler. Evolution Accelerated. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Freakonomics Radio is produced by WNYC Studios and Dubner Productions. This episode was produced by Stephanie Tam. Our staff also includes Allison Hockenberry, Merritt Jacob, Greg Rosalski, Max Miller, Harry Huggins, and Andy Meisenheimer. The music you hear throughout the episode was composed by Luis Guerra. You can subscribe to Freakonomics Radio on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. You should also check out our archive at Freakonomics.com. There you can stream or download every episode we've ever made. You can also find the transcripts and links to the underlying academic research. We can also be found on Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn or via email at radio at Freakonomics.com. Thanks for listening. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. 
fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.